Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 115. Before we get into today's Q&A, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. You can find Precision Hydration on precisionhydration.com. They make electrolyte supplements that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration levels. So if you are somebody who loses a lot of sodium, then you get a stronger electrolyte supplement. And if you lose less, then you get a less strong supplement. And this becomes very easy when you get a free hydration plan. So that's a simple quiz, 10 questions that you will answer on precisionhydration.com. And that will give you a good validated ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat. Also make sure that you check out uh, their blog. They always have good articles about uh, all sorts of things around endurance sports coming up there. So for example, a couple of recent ones that were really interesting were do you sweat when you swim? What happens when you drink too much before a race? And how to use heat training, sorry, how to use indoor training to prepare for the heat of racing. Check that out. And if you're interested in buying Precision Hydration's electrolyte supplements, then use the promo code that triathlon show one five to get 15 percent off your order and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com roca produce products of exceptional quality and with a ton of innovations into them you have things like the arms of technology in their wetsuits and tri suits the exoskeleton of the maverick x2 wetsuit the great lift and buoyancy profile of uh, the Maverick lineup in general, but also in particular the Maverick MX, the Max Buoyancy wetsuit. In terms of their eyewear, sunglasses and prescription glasses, you have all the ultra lightweight glasses with adjustable titanium cores, so you can match them to your face profile, a Geeko anti-slip technology, and of course, really advanced optics and coatings designed for performance even in extreme conditions. You can get 20% off your Roka order by getting a discount code on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now let's get into today's Q&A where I have a special guest in Michael Rosenblatt. Uh, so you may have heard him on the podcast before. We have done two episodes and linked to both in the episode description. One of them was on internal training. The other was on polarized training versus threshold training. And uh, in this Q&A, we will discuss internal training. And uh, you, the listeners, have sent in questions about internal training that we'll get to. We will also, before getting into the actual questions, uh, discuss a study that Michael is recruiting for. And this is a remote study, so a training study where you can just do the the training prescription on your own smart trainer at home. So yeah, just listen to the details there. And if you're interested, the details for how to, well, more details and how to sign up is also included in the link in the episode description in your podcast app. All right. Hope that you enjoy this Q&A with Michael Rosenblatt. So I'm back with uh, Michael Rosenblatt on uh, the Triathlon show. And uh, Michael, uh, you've been on the podcast before, so you kind of know how it works. And we won't need to do a long introduction. But one thing that we do want to talk about is a study that you're uh, currently recruiting for. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it's a remote study, so people all over the world can participate. Uh, Let us know what it's about and who might be interested in participating. Yeah, for sure. So um, we're looking for uh, cyclists uh, to take part in, uh, I guess, probably the first study of its kind uh, 
Uh, it's an international uh, training study uh, on interval training. And we're using a software platform called Trainer Road uh, to help uh, with our data collection. And uh, we're collaborating with many sports science researchers, uh, university and cycling clubs uh, around the world. And uh, the, the primary objective uh, is uh, to determine the effect of different interval workout durations uh, on time trial performance. And uh, uh, the study, it's, it's basically, it's a six-week training intervention. There's some baseline testing for a couple of weeks and then a, a follow-up week of testing. Uh, and uh, the great thing is, is that, you know, given our current situation, participants will be able to perform all their testing and training uh, sessions uh, at the convenience of their, their own home with their smart trainer. Yeah. And uh, who can participate? You said cyclists. Can you give a bit more details? And of course, we don't have to have the full inclusion ex- and exclusion criteria list here, but uh, just, uh, I guess we will have the link as well in the episode description, but where should people go to find out more? For sure. So uh, we're looking uh, to recruit uh, participants or individuals between the ages of 18 and 45 years. Uh, and you have to have uh, uh, already been cycling for relatively consistently for the last six months. Uh, and uh, I think we're, we're looking at uh, for individuals between anywhere from active athlete up to elites. And uh, uh, yes, we're also looking for multi-sport athletes if they're interested. Uh, but primarily during this training period, uh, uh, participants will only be able to uh, uh, take part in just the cycling aspects to, ma- to maintain uh, consistency among all the participants. All right. And uh where do people go to find out more and potentially sign up if they want to do that? Yeah, so uh, there's a link on my website. Uh, it's uh, my website is evidencebasedcoaching.ca, and under uh, the the research tab, there'll be a spot where you can click on the training study. So it'll provide some information, uh, some background of really kind of what you'd be getting into, what would what would be required of you, and, and some basic information. And uh, uh, there's also uh, at the bottom before you'd actually go through the registration process. There's also an, uh, an FAQ page that uh, I posted so that if there's some additional questions, just to ensure, you know, is this study right for you um, and uh, any other questions that we've been getting along the way. So, uh, yeah, uh, people can partic- uh, register through that website. And I think that there's been uh, some postings uh, either through Twitter and, and uh, I think even through Trainer Road's website and their forums, there's been some, uh, some people... Uh, 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 posting about the the study, so there's some uh, you can access it through there too, but primarily through the the link through evidencebasedcoaching.ca. Yeah, and I'll have a direct link in the episode description here for the podcast as well. Uh, what is the benefit for somebody of participating in a study like this? So, uh, it, I, I think there's a lot of different benefits, and uh, uh, really, what we're we're trying to do is. Uh, uh, figure out which mode of interval training might be uh, the most optimal if there is. I mean, it's interesting because there, there may not be a difference between those modes, which is still a, a good result, I'd say. Uh, but in terms of the benefits for the individuals uh, who'd be participating, uh, they'll uh, not only will they get some good information result uh, from the testing, uh, but they'll kind of go through a, a training process that uh, well, I can't say it's going to be guaranteed to improve fitness, but generally speaking, when we do an interval training program, uh, we will likely see an improvement in performance. 
but uh, again, I can't necessarily say that would be the case for ethical purposes. Um, but uh, uh, it'll kind of, I think there'll, there'll be some additional benefits, not just in, in terms of fitness, but in terms of motivation over the, the winter period. So you get to take part in the study and contribute to science. Uh, I think I've seen some, some joking comments now that uh, people get to uh, give their body to science uh, or, uh, you know, some, some funny things like that. But, uh, but overall it, it should kind of help with uh, training over the winter and um, help promote, uh, uh, help improve the field of sports science and specifically in cycling uh, for us to all um find better ways to train and, and final question can you uh, elaborate a bit on what types of intervals you are comparing so i i can't get into too much detail specifically around the the exact intervals because we're we're hoping to maintain some blinding uh, uh so that there's a, a decrease in the bias of the interventions themselves but uh basically uh, we're, we're comparing high intensity interval or different high intensity interval training programs. Uh, and, uh, basically, uh, participants will, will perform these sessions a couple of times a week, uh, over that six week period. Yep. So harder than FTP uh, folks. That's, uh, what's waiting. Uh, all right. Let's get into some questions around intervals that, uh, listeners have sent in on, uh, email and social media and so on. And, uh, let me see here. Well, one question that I want to to ask about is work rest ratio. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about whether there, according to research uh, or just coaching practice, in your opinion, is something such as an optimal work to rest ratio, and how it how different intensities even might impact what the optimal work to rest ratio is? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think this is a big area of research in interval training. And uh, when, when we consider uh, that work-to-rest ratio, we should look at whether we're considering it in sprint interval training or high-intensity interval training. But uh, I've, I've recently, and, and you and I have spoken a little bit about uh, a study that's currently in review. Uh, it's, a, it's a large meta-regression. And uh, basically, uh, the results of this of, of the meta-regression is showing that, that uh, the rest duration may not be as important as we had once thought, uh, at least with regards to improving time trial performance. So uh, whether we have long duration or short duration rest, uh, we're likely to see similar improvements in time trial performance. Mm, yeah, and that, that's a really important takeaway, in my opinion, because uh, maybe you can just do a little bit better work in the intervals if you uh, give yourself a little bit more rest, and and that might be what benefits you more at the end of the day rather than just cutting the rest very short. And one comment on uh, the meta regression there and the importance or the influence of different parameters on time trial performance. That is for listeners uh, knowledge, the best way that you can really like uh, assess whether train protocol is effective compared to VO2 max, because an improvement in VO2 max doesn't necessarily mean an improvement in performance, but here performance was assessed directly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the next question is uh, one that is quite common as well. What is the driver of adaptation of uh, of high intensity intervals? Is it you know spending a time a long time at a high VO two, a high oxygen uptake, or is it more so about the time that you spend at a certain pace or power, irrespective of VO two, or is it something something else entirely in terms of the the physiology behind it, not necessarily the parameters that you've been looking at in the meta regression? Mm -hmm. So that that's certainly a good question, and it's uh, there's a lot of factors to consider 
regarding the programming uh, and and what's actually happening. Uh, I'd say the, the two camps would be either consider exercising at a, a high uh, total oxygen consumption. So uh, um, during that interval bout to try to exercise as close to your VO2 max as you can. Uh, and, uh, and so that would be looking at a physiological response, whereas the, um, the other way of looking at it would be, is it just the fact that we're, we're doing work and to try to maximize the amount of time we're spending doing work, uh, at a high intensity. And, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? What, which camp is right? So it's, yeah. And, and hopefully the, the study that, uh, we're recruiting for might give us some insight into it, even though we're not collecting physiological measures, but, uh, I right now it's looking like um, longer duration intervals uh, that are probably you know, between five and six minutes, you know, give or take a minute, hard to say exactly, uh, might be uh, uh, the most beneficial. Uh, and I think that might be because of being able to spend a, a, a large time at high oxygen consumption, but also stressing the, the cardiac, uh, uh, basically your heart, uh, uh, for a longer duration to allow for central adaptations. Um, uh, though there is some conflicting evidence here from uh, Bent Ronestad, uh, who does these kind of 30-15 protocols. Um, and so it's it's something that I'm still looking into a little bit, and it's a very interesting uh, uh, interesting results that we've seen from his, some of his works where we're, uh, where we're seeing that even these shorter intervals um, can elicit uh, the same type of adaptations. Uh, but uh, even though that's the case, they're still exercising at a, quite a high intensity for a long period of time. Yeah. And uh, on a related note, uh, some people are asking about whether to start your intervals really hard or really fast if you're running or swimming to raise oxygen uptake quickly and then just kind of hold on for the remainder of the interval. Uh, that's something that has been investigated a little bit, I think. Well, what's your opinion on, on that sort of protocol? Yeah, no, I've, I've certainly looked into this uh, quite a bit. And there, there are a lot of acute studies that, that see that not only do we get to peak oxygen levels at a much quicker rate, but then the time to exhaustion is much longer uh, by doing these kind of fast start uh, or decreasing workload um, uh, type of protocols. Uh, one thing that I would have liked to test as well, and hopefully when we can all get back into the lab, is to do a training study where we actually see, is there a difference between these kind of fast start protocols and a, a normal protocol on time trial performance? And, and that would basically tell us, well, if we do these regular starts, it takes a little bit longer to, to get to high levels of O2 uh, as opposed to the fast start. And uh, it might provide some more insight into, well, does oxygen really matter? Uh, or is it just the fact that uh, uh, we're exercising and just the mechanical work itself is what's important? So, so we don't quite. The jury is still out on that whether it's really effective. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's certainly a a, a a new area of of work. I mean, it's been around for a few years now, but uh, it's just an emerging area, and it's, it's certainly challenging challenging to conduct training studies. Uh, and so, I think it's uh, it makes sense why uh, we we don't know as much yet on the on the topic. All right. Uh, I'm getting a bit more organized with my list of questions here. So I can <laughs> start to start to, uh, to say the names of the people that have been asking them. So this one is from Everett in Portland, who asks about how varying one's cadence can impact the adaptation during high-intensity interval training. 
are there benefits or drawbacks to uh, to doing them significantly lower or higher than your preferred cadence, for example? Yeah, so that that's certainly a great question. And my research primarily focuses around manipulating the programming of the interval training itself. So we look at the the, the uh, uh, basically that those protocols as opposed to the individual factors or the choice to to alter cadence. However, I certainly have read uh, quite a bit of research on manipulating cadence. And uh, actually, I even read one study yesterday. It's a, a little bit of an older study from 2012 that that shows that uh, lower cadence may be beneficial for uh, improving uh, uphill type time trials, whereas faster cadence may be more beneficial uh, for flat type of time trials. So uh, we do see improvements in some physiological measures for different reasons, um, but uh, it looks like uh, it might be there might be uh, specific adaptations depending on the type of event that you're doing, and I'd say that kind of coincides with what actually happens. You tend to slow your cadence down a little bit when you're going uphill, anyways. Yeah. And uh, next question is from Jack in Canada, who asks: uh, When prescribing intervals at a certain power, like for for example, a percentage of your uh, of your watt max or your MAP. Uh, does the type of athlete have a big influence? For example, if you have a more fast twitch dominant athlete versus more slow twitch dominant athlete in in how you prescribe the actual interval session, or should prescribe it, I should say. Yeah, and so that, I mean that's certainly a good question, and uh, it'd be hard for us to tell because uh, most of the time when we're working with our athletes, we wouldn't know um, what uh, where the predominance of their muscle fiber types are. However. Uh, we we would know, I mean, if somebody's going to be working on an endurance sport uh, or, or wants to compete or participate in an endurance sport, that likely um, we tend to go to the, to the types of sports that we're more genetically capable of. So probably we'd be more likely uh, or we'd more likely have uh, more slow twitch as opposed to fast twitch. Uh, but uh, uh, I haven't really looked too much into uh, the influence of looking at, for instance, sprint interval training versus uh, uh, high intensity interval training on fiber type specific adaptations. Uh, and that would, that would, that would go to the idea of do we train our strengths or do we train our weaknesses? Uh, I think, uh, it doesn't matter, uh, from some of the results from my, uh, from my meta regression that we're still seeing that high intensity interval training, which is uh, performed at a lower intensity than sprint interval training, uh, leads to greater improvements in time trial performance. Uh, depending on the, the way the protocol is set up. But generally speaking, uh, that's what we see. Mm. Jack also asks why a research doesn't usually measure the impact of a training intervention on uh, the anaerobic or glycolytic, glycolytic energy systems. It's usually always VO2 max or a performance measure or both, but rarely glycolytic. But potentially improvements in the glycolytic capacity could have an influence on, for example, uh, a performance test or performance simulation. So why isn't that measured more often? No, that's, and that's definitely a great question. And it's something that I had to consider when I was putting together some of my, my previous work. And uh, the, the primary reason is because uh, it's actually more challenging to measure uh, anaerobic work uh, during an interval as opposed to the aerobic work. So we can measure the oxygen that somebody's utilizing, but you know, one way that we might measure uh, the anaerobic work potentially could be by considering the, the uh, plasma lactate levels or venous uh, lactate levels. 
there's the issue is that they're they're just not as reliable, and there's some literature that suggests that uh, using these anaerobic uh, or lactate type measurements might not might not help. But what we can do is if we measure oxygen uptake kinetics and we we consider how much oxygen somebody's used, uh, we can actually model uh, model the interval and determine uh, based on uh, how much energy was used aerobically, and then we can calculate uh, how much total energy was used in the interval. We can actually determine within you know some error how much anaerobic work was done. Uh, the only issue here is now when we're modeling aerobic work, the challenging part could be, well, how much aerobic work was done through the use of fatty acids versus carbohydrates. So that could certainly uh, uh, influence the results. Mm, yeah, but I would concur with Jack there that it would be really interesting to to see in, for example, in studies where you have, let's say, a 10-mile time trial as the performance outcome that you're measuring before and after the study to, to actually measure uh, the, the O2 throughout that performance test pre and post and then model the anaerobic contribution to that so you can actually see whether the uh, the effect of the intervention then came from predominantly aerobic improvements or or potentially glycolytic improvements or a combination of both yeah and actually uh i spoke with uh, steven seiler last week uh and i don't know how much i can speak to to some of his work yet because i don't know how much of it's public but uh, i know that he is looking at doing some of this type of stuff uh, and, uh, and, and so it kind of gives us an idea of where some of that anaerobic contribution can go. Um, but, uh, again, I, I don't know too much about, um, how much of that information is available, but I do know that the, it certainly is something to consider, especially when you go above critical power to see how much of that, uh, of your anaerobic work capacity or your W prime is still left and, 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 and how much basically how how many times can you go into the hole <laughs> while racing yeah. yeah yeah because a lot a lot of listeners of this podcast for example are interested in things like half and full ironman racing and then it, it's all well and good doing an intro training and then uh improving your 20 minute power but if it actually turns out that a lot of the improvement came from anaerobic improvements then it's not so useful for your race performance at the end of the day mm-hmm. but uh let's go to the next topic and a lot of listeners have a similar question here but this is from uh, Gesina in germany who writes that the instruction in intro workouts uh, tends to be about consistency so the last set should be similarly paced to the first you should be able to hold a power or pace uh, throughout the the set uh Gesina's confusion is that on the last set she or my confusion is on the last set i will be more tired and to achieve the same pace i will need to work harder uh, so is that what you're supposed to be doing or should all reps be at the same uh, perceived intensity with the understanding that they will get slower after each interval so a very, very good question. And there's, there's kind of two ways to approach that. Uh, so first way, uh, the first thing to talk about is, you know, are you exercising in the appropriate intensity domain? And, and what my research is showing, and I'm, I'm definitely happy to chat about it a little bit, uh, is that, uh, if you're, you're performing uh, high intensity interval and exercise and you're in that severe intensity domain, which is basically above your critical power, but below your VO2 max, and you know you're in that domain, uh, the, the, the speed or power that you're, that you're at probably doesn't matter. 
Now, this certainly would conflict with a lot of other people's beliefs, and, and it, there is some conflicting, it does conflict with some research, but the most important thing is, is that you're within that domain. The other thing that I would say is, because in, in addition to being a, an exercise physiologist, uh, I'm also a physiotherapist. And what I'd always say to my athletes is, as soon as you feel like you can't generally maintain the intensity and your biomechanics are kind of going out the window, that's a time to stop. Uh, because that's when you're more likely to get hurt. And so there's a difference between, well, I'm a little bit tired, but I, I you know, I can still push it versus, well, I'm done. And, uh, when or if that happens, uh, you know, aside from you're just not going to get the, the types of benefits that you'd want physiologically, but you're also more likely to get injured. So, you know, the, the, I guess the quick answer for that is, uh, it doesn't exactly matter. You want to make sure you're pretty much exercising roughly at that in the in the domain that you want to be at yeah and, and i think that as an athlete gains more experience they usually tend to be better and better able to to pace the intervals fairly evenly and if you fade a bit in the last intervals i don't think it matters and if you manage to go a bit harder in the last few intervals that can be great psychologically and also from just for the perspective of pacing training so learning how to pace yourself but but i usually think that like if you if you go out and do a workout and you're not massively uh like changing the pace or the power from interval to interval then you're you're hitting them and you're pretty pretty darn tired after the after your workout then you're then you're doing a good job and you're uh you're, you're getting getting the work done that is required just from from a coaching perspective as well yeah and uh, then a couple of listeners are asking similar questions to this one. I'm reading the one that Mickey from the United Arab Emirates sent in, which is having completed blocks of uh, high intensity intervals, can the adaptation benefits be retained by sprinkling uh, quote unquote reminder sessions in subsequent training blocks, which have might have a different uh, intensity focus, for example, sub maximal or sub threshold work. So I guess the way I interpret that is just basically by, you know, we've done some high intensity interval training. And then uh, if we, you know, we were doing a different block, maybe if we do the odd session of high intensity yeah. interval training. Yep. So I, that's certainly a good question. Uh, and there, there's a lot of research that shows if we do decrease our training load, but we still uh, have some high intensity interval training or even sprint interval training, that we will maintain performance. Let, uh, let's assume let's assume the training load doesn't decrease because they keep okay. doing training, but uh, but a different type of training, maybe more threshold training. Okay, uh, so it's a tough question. I don't think I have a, a direct answer to that, but what I can say is that we do see when we we change the type of training. Um, generally speaking, you will alter your fitness. Uh, I haven't actually seen any studies or have even looked into. Uh, if, uh, kind of adding in the odd session, uh, will, uh, will help maintain or even improve fitness. But what I can say, uh, is the total volume or number, I should say the total number of rep, uh, sessions of high intensity interval training that you perform does not need to be too high. So you don't need to be doing three or four sessions per week. So if, uh, if maybe you do only one session a week, would that still maintain your fitness? Um, I could certainly speak to if you do two, that will, but I haven't seen any studies that only include one. So uh, I guess I, it's hard to comment on that one. 
Mm. Just I'll comment from my coaching experience and anecdotal experience is that uh, yes, it it does seem to work in in my opinion. Again, purely anecdotal, yeah. not speaking from research. But but what I do in that scenario is to maybe not even a dedicated session to high intensity intervals, but it can be doing a block of uh, let's say ten times one minute high intensity intervals before the start of a session that might have as its main focus threshold work or tempo work and and doing that once per week or so seems to to maintain a lot or at least then once you do another block of high intensity intervals you do one or two sessions and boom you're back to where you ended and then you can quickly start to progress even further so so i do see that that sort of model with switching the focus to another block adding a little bit of maintenance work or reminder work as Mickey called it uh, seems to work pretty well in my opinion mm-hmm. yeah and uh, then there are quite a few questions on this theme this one is from owen who writes within some interval prescriptions we can see things like do sets of 30 seconds on 30 seconds off until you can't do anymore or can't hold the pace or power so basically until failure type of intervals uh, what do you think of this sort of prescription compared to a predefined number of repetitions for example two sets of 10 minutes of 30 30s or three sets of 10 minutes of 30 30s so yeah that's a, a, certainly a good question and i i don't think it matters i think the what what's most important is that uh that you're you're putting out an effort and uh you know once you go above maybe four repetitions doing many more, you might not necessarily see, see additional benefits. And in fact, um, I, there might be some conflicting literature on that. Uh, but uh, again, that meta regression that's, that I submitted, and we're, I'm excited to get this out so I can talk about it a little bit more, uh, shows that it, it, it might not be as important for how many repetitions or how long uh, you're exercising in terms of the total volume. Uh, so I don't, I don't think it would actually matter if you're going till exhaustion or you just set a certain amount of work within a certain range. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in this example, uh, the 30, 30s, uh, what might you say, this might be as a practitioner, Mm -hmm. what would you say could be potentially the minimal effective dose for an an intermediate athlete? Somebody who's an athlete, but they're not elite. They're not, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, good question. And and if if I was to prescribe something like 3030s or or maybe even 3015s, uh what I would do is I'd have uh, uh the the athlete or the individual exercise uh for about 8 to 12 total minutes including the rest. Uh something like that and maybe do 3 to 4 sets like that. And uh uh I think uh possibly at best perceived effort which makes it the most realistic uh, uh, for an athlete when they're actually training. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So probably if we, if we were to say, eight, you know, maybe four to six minutes of actual work, but if you're, you know, when we're doing these things like 30, 15s or 30, 30s, your, uh, your, your whole bot, your basically the acute response is, is quite substantial. So um, you're, you're putting a good, uh, quite a large physiological stress on the body. So uh yeah, I, I'd say do something like that for about, you know, eight to 12 minutes and, and just do it like that's that one whole set of those would be like one rep of an interval and maybe do four sets of those. 
Yeah. So when you at the beginning said it doesn't matter, uh, that's uh, just to clarify, it doesn't necessarily matter in terms of the benefits from doing things to failure compared to doing three or four sets as you now describes. But where it can matter is in terms of the the cost that uh, and the toll that that workout takes on you. So that's where maybe mm-hmm. thinking about things in from a minimal effective dose perspective can be beneficial and maybe not do too many of those until failure exercises although they do have their place maybe sometimes in in that they can be really beneficial psychologically and there can be other reasons to do them as well but uh from your data it seems that we we could maybe get away with just doing those three to four sets of of 3015s or 3030s yeah and uh, uh interestingly it's uh i think the goal is to find what's the the least amount of work we can do to get the most amount of adaptation. And so um, we that's certainly what we want to do to limit fatigue. But uh, as you did say, and I certainly do this personally, uh, I think probably when I'm doing my running intervals, my last, you know, my last interval, I'm just given her. And does that mean that the intensity needs to be that high for me to get the adaptations or at least the physiological adaptations? Maybe not, but uh, I've certainly done some triathlon racing at a recreational level and uh knowing how to push to get to that finish line is is pretty important (laughs) yeah uh that that's absolutely true that's a a real skill that is owned in in training week after week after week Mm -hmm. Uh, i actually just now get recall my interview with uh malcolm brown who coached uh the brownlee brothers for a long long time uh including double olympic gold medalist alistair brownlee and one of the key things he said about their ability to suffer and sort of mental fortitude when it comes to pushing themselves is just that that's a skill that they've owned since they were eight years old and uh week in week out doing doing that sort of work so Mm. yeah uh next question is from heiko who asks uh can you do high intensity interval sessions with more than one or can you do interval sessions i should say with more than one type of intervals where you train different metabolic systems uh yeah in one session uh, definitely a great question and i know that uh especially when i think about track coaches you see that uh very often where you know you might do some strides or you might do some longer intervals mixed with shorter intervals uh and I haven't, you know, I don't think I've seen any studies or any science that's actually, well, actually, I should correct myself. I certainly have seen some uh, that uses a combination of the two, uh, but it's hard to say, well, what physiological adaptations are we getting? And so most of the time we, we, we split them apart. Um, With the two, you mean sprint interval training and high intensity interval training? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's correct. So basically to, to do, you know, would we do, uh, you, know, you know, 20 second all out efforts? And mix that up with uh, four minute efforts. And as a coach, I mean, I can certainly speak anecdotally on this. As a coach, I thought, well, I know that we get benefits from doing both, but I also know we have a limited amount of sessions that we can do per week. So if we kind of combine the two into one session, you're certainly going to get stress the systems uh, uh, equal or uh, as a, you know, based on uh, the work that you're doing, you'll stress them appropriately. The, the next question is, is, you know, if we were to stress the system, which, which physiological or acute response is going to dominate to then say, uh, let's produce an adaptation. So even though there's these, you know, maybe there's more lactate or we're causing, you know, a greater recruitment of fast switch muscle fibers. If we want to, for instance, increase, uh, how much mitochondria we have, 
well, is, is one going to lead to more gene expression of, uh, 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 basically the, the proteins required to make mitochondria? It's really hard to say because we can, we can have all the stimulus, but then what's actually down the, down the chain, uh, actually going to lead to longer term adaptation. So good question. I, I don't think we know enough about this yet. Um, uh, or at least I know for sure I don't. <laughs> yeah, I'll just add that uh, I have started experimenting with this a little bit. An example would be kind of similar to the maintenance uh, training that we talked about a bit earlier, where I might have an athlete do four by 15 second sprint intervals and as part of like after their easy their easy warm-up and before a main session of, for example, tempo training. So so that is very different. So not combining uh, sit and hit, but sit and something else, or it could even be, in the case of those maintenance sessions, it could be hit and something else. But again, yeah, with this, I definitely don't have enough uh, anecdotal evidence even to, to mm-hmm. speak with any certainty about whether I think it works or not. But it's something I've started experimenting with to, to get a little bit of the benefits that you can get from high-intensity sessions, even when other aspects of training are the main focus of a particular athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great question though. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll take a break here and come back in two weeks time. So with more questions. So, uh, so thank you, Michael so far, and we'll continue answer uh, answering listener questions uh, in two weeks. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this special Q&A with uh, an expert guest in Michael Rosenblatt. If you like this format with uh, expert guests for particular topics of Q&As, then do let me know. Uh, I always appreciate hearing your feedback. We will have part two of this Q&A in two weeks' time, and then we will discuss things like interval training for older athletes, how to combine interval training in swimming, biking, and running, we will discuss uh, intro progressions and over under intervals and limiting factors, whether they might be muscular or cardiovascular and many other things. So uh, don't miss that. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, in the episode description in your podcast app, there is a link for more information about joining the study that Michael is conducting and recruiting for currently. I hope that if you are interested, you go and have a look and sign up if it seems appropriate for you. Also, if you are interested in coaching services, training camps or training plans that we offer at scientifictriathlon.com, then go there to the website and you can learn more about those products and services. If you are serious about improvements or even if you just want help implementing all of the concepts you hear and learn about on these podcasts, but actually putting that into practice, then I would strongly recommend considering getting some sort of help with that, whether that's just a training plan or full-on individual coaching. We have all these different options to suit the needs of most about anybody. Finally, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free hydration plan and get 15% off your order with the promo code show 15 and thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>